Kia ora koutou. Welcome to the New Zealand General Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Scott-Jones. Earlier seasons of this podcast focused on joy in practice. This season is an opportunity to listen in on monthly conversations I have with Dr. Dave Mapleston, organized for the Pinnacle GP Network. Dave shares insights into important clinical changes he picks up in his reading as a part-time GP and advisor to the Health and Disability Commissioner. I hope you enjoy. Kyoto, uh, welcome to October's Clinical Snippets. Uh, I'm Joe Scott Jones, I'm the Medical Director at uh, Pinnacle. And um, Dave, do you want to introduce yourself? Yep, Dave Mapleston, part time GP, part time um, in house clinical advisor for HDC, and a little bit of clinical governance for Pinnacle. The, and um, raconteur, uh, opera lover. Yes, I do love opera, absolutely. <laughs> If anyone, wants a, if anyone wants a song to lift your spirits, um, go and listen to the aria from Samson and Delilah by Saint-Saëns. Okay. Awesome. Sung by Alina Garantia. Just the most beautiful piece of music you'll ever hear. I will link it in the show notes. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> but we're going to talk about other things. Yes, yes. Yeah. So it's, a, it's a smorgasbord as usual. Um, but And I, I've avoided... Um, um, talking about anything to do with COVID because I think we're all in COVID saturation at this point. Yeah. So it's a distraction from, from the realities of day-to-day life, really. Thank you. Uh, one thing that is imminent, and you would have been hearing quite a bit of, is End of Life Choice Act, which is now two weeks from coming into force. Yeah. Uh, and I've dribbled a few little snippets out in, in these snippets um, over a period of time. Uh, and the latest one really is just to remind people of um, uh, skins and your responsibility, even if you're a conscientious objector, to ensure that the patient requesting assistance with end-of-life choice uh, is aware of SCENS um, and um, is able to contact them. So SCENS uh, basically will have a list of um, replacement attending medical practitioners if you're not willing or able to provide the service yourself, the independent medical practitioners who can provide a second opinion as to um, competency, psychiatrists if required, and also nurse practitioners um, who may be willing to be involved in the process. Um, so that they're available and as, as a support uh, process and in the planning of assisted dying with the, with the person and their whanau. Um, so your responsibilities or our responsibilities if a person raises the, um, the topic of, of assisted dying is if you are a conscientious objector to inform the person that you have a conscientious objection um, but to tell them they have a right to contact SCENS and that, that, that will have a list of these personnel that would assist them in their, uh, in their journey. Um, there's been some talk at one of the sessions I was at that um, object, even though conscientious objection is the only listed um, uh, sort of objection in the legislation, if you don't feel it's within your scope of practice or you have the ability to provide the service, even if you don't have a conscientious objection, uh, then um, you're still you're obliged in that case still to tell the person um, to contact Skins for additional support. Yeah, I think that came from a, a, a challenge around that um, part of the legislation. So that the originally all you can say within the legislation was that you're a conscientious objector, but obviously there are people who don't have the skills or the expertise to provide assisted dying services 
um, and uh, as a but they don't necessarily have a conscientious objection to the um, to the process. So that's been now, although it's not part of the legislation, it's been added into that um, uh, part of the the conversation. You know, to to be able to say. I don't have a conscientious objection, but I don't have the skills to do this. So I need to, I need you to refer you on to the SCENS um, group yeah. um, who will provide you with an, uh, an attending medical practitioner and, and take things from there. So it's a th- I think it's a, um, I think it's a good uh, addition to the, um, to the process. Yeah. But I'd, I'd imagine there will be quite a few um, GPs will be in that, in that section. Mm. Uh, the, um, so the schedule of payments has been, I won't say agreed, but it's been published. Um, I mean, I just honestly, my heart sunk when I saw that a psychiatrist gets approximately double um, the amount for for um, assessing competency than the second health practitioner, and a different level of of, of payment for travel as well. Yeah, same um, task, same, same. Well, not necessarily. They assume that psychiatrists drive Jaguars, I presume. Oh yeah, I didn't mean same class of car. <laughs> Yes, so it's um, that's that's slightly disconcerting, but anyway, that's the way it is. Um, yeah. And then again, that there are multiple learning modules available on the Learn On One website. Um, so three that are just general um, information in relation to the act itself, and then a series of modules, training modules for if you are going to be um, uh, heavily involved in the process itself. So you've got a couple of weeks to um, to get those under your belt before patients start asking. Yeah. The other interesting thing we discussed the other day was um, whether having a pamphlet around end-of-life choice in your waiting room would um, constitute raising the, the issue with your patients, which is not allowed. Uh, but the consensus from the registrar, the new registrar, was basically that having that pamphlet along with your other pamphlets would not be interpreted it as actively raising the subject with with your patients i dare say there'll be yet be a test case on that yeah but uh, but they also said that putting a notice up saying that you do not provide the service was probably would although it was unclear as yet um it would be unwise to do that until there's clarity around it that's right. I think I think public, either publicising that you do offer the service or that you don't offer the service, they recommended against it, at the moment. But yeah, and it, just it, a it, generic pamphlet was um, was probably acceptable. Yeah, but it, so it's and and I think the reasoning for that, and it's quite it, it does seem to me quite reasonable in that it's a very delicate subject for somebody to raise in the first place, and it's probably best dealt with for, in person, and you're not um, so that you're not just blanketly saying no. Um, you're, um, you know, helping them to make that act to access the service through the scans group anyway. Um, so, um, yeah, interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how that all develops, but it's evolving. Yes. Yeah. And the only other point I'd make, I guess, from from wearing my HTC hat is just the importance of um, documentation, documentation, documentation. So even if you're a conscientious objector, documenting the conversation that you have with the patient, including the fact that you've referred them to scans um, and certainly if you're involved in the process just documenting every step of the process and every every contact you have with the patient um, is going to be really important and just again I know we talked about it before but uh, those learn online 
modules are excellent. The three free ones, or you know, or three, um, you know, uh, ones that are accessible by everybody, uh, are really good. There's a conversation guide um, there as well, which is I, I can't can't recommend high and highly enough. I absolutely agree. Um, going to something completely different, concussion. Uh, so. Um, uh, recently had i can't remember where this came from but but some notification that the acc referral system for concussion really isn't providing a great service at the moment there's an average of eight weeks wait before being able to access um, oh. concussion treatments through acc um it may, it may vary from region to region um and um i think acc along with aut have developed a um, brain injury screening tool to enable both detection of concussion and monitoring of concussion in primary care. And this is, again, it's come up at a particularly timely um, point for me because I've had several complaints lately around um, patients complaining of inadequate assessment of their head injury and, and inadequate or delayed recognition of concussion, which is then diagnosed by somebody else six weeks later and then they're referred to the concussion service or whatever. Uh, and, and this is difficult. I mean, I found this really difficult because if you look at the health pathway, um, it, it, it gives you advice on your neurological examination, et cetera, and then suggests you might want to consider using the SCAT-5 tool, which to me is like half an hour of, yeah. of just too, too difficult to actually administer in, in, a, in reality. Right. Um, but this, um, this evidence-based tool uh, looks really, really good. Uh, so it takes six minutes to administer. Um, it hasn't been incorporated into any PMS that I'm aware of at the moment, but this is the, the tool here, the guide. So basically you're recording injury details, um, asking the patient a few questions um, about their symptoms since the injury, and then some Likert scales on some particular, or well, three particular aspects, uh, physical vestibular, ocular, and cognitive, uh, and some mood or, or cognitive related questions. And then you end up with a score, which, Will enable you to determine how severe is this um, concussion in this patient uh, and also enable you to actually sequentially monitor the patient in a, in a kind of semi-objective manner as well. So I think it's just made management of, of uh, mild TBI perhaps a little more practical from the primary care perspective um, but maybe improve the quality as well if we've got an easy to use tool like this that's, that's actually practical for primary care. It certainly looks like something that should be able to be embedded into the practice management system as well, if we can if we can work on that. Yeah, I think it certainly looks like ACC are indicating that um, it, it will be, or there's certainly research going on into incorporating the tool and perhaps oh, cool. other tools. Uh, so yeah, 16 items, take six minutes from start to finish. Um, and the, the um, developers say it should leave you enough time within the 15 minute consult to provide treatment advice. Uh, and so again, just the recommendation that you that you give any patient with a head injury a handout, the ACC handout on how to care for yourself or or the ACC handout on mild TBI afterwards so the patient knows what to expect uh, and, in, and safety netting advice and to document that. And I think in that context, you're much less likely to get a complaint around, um, around not recognizing concussion, concussion or mismanagement or whatever. So is the, the idea that you would do it uh, with every head injury um as a, a and then um uh, or is it you know if you're suspecting or suspecting concussion yeah i i think i think if someone comes in 
who have knocked their head and they've got a laceration, they want to sign up and, and they're otherwise absolutely fine. I, I probably, I, I don't know. It's, yeah. I, th I think there's going to be a gap between best practice and common practice. Yeah. Uh, and I think best practice would be if someone's had a significant, if someone's had a head injury, and I mean, it doesn't have to be that significant to cause concussion symptoms. Um, best practice would be to actually administer this. Yeah. Um, but the, the reality, I guess, is, you know, you're often seeing someone as a drop-in or between patients because they've come in having whacked their head or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, there's those who don't seem to have any cognitive impact or there's no story of, of loss of consciousness or even suspicion of it. And, and I would always give them the ACC head injury uh, leaflet anyway. Yeah. And then, it, but if they come back, then maybe this is, that's the time to... Um, that I would, I would probably take the, the extra step in doing this. I'd probably use it with anybody who had any sort of potential blackout or dizziness or was feeling woozy or a headache or anything like that. But I, I wouldn't, I can see that I wouldn't necessarily do it with every single cut on the head. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think people come in after, after a head injury, either because they've got a cut on their head or because they've got a symptom. Yeah. And I okay. think this isn't just a mild knock. So in some yeah. ways, you might be able to exclude the cut on the head ones, but otherwise, if they're coming in post head injury, I mean, I think of the number of times I've knocked my head, I wouldn't even consider going to the going to the GP. Yeah. Uh, but the ones that end up in front of you, maybe that's because they are concerned about a symptom, which means maybe we'll be using this more often than than we think. Yeah, yeah. This happened to my own son. Actually, he had a delayed um, diagnosis of concussion, and um, and uh, the so yeah. A good tool. Good tool. Have a look at us. Like mm -hmm. downloaders. Um, prostate cancer. So this just revisiting prostate cancer really because a um, the recent um, quality improvement monitoring report, which I think was a based on figures that were a couple of years old, mm -hmm. um, but I, 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 I'm sure things haven't changed particularly. Uh, really emphasised the. Um, a lack of equity in outcomes and diagnosis uh, as regards prostate cancer. Yeah. Um, so they're presented, the figures are presented here. Um, it's still a, a significant percent being diagnosed in ED, which surprises me a little. Yeah. Um, and that's more likely to happen in uh, area, uh, males who live in areas of high social deprivation. Uh, and Maori are less likely than non-Maori to be diagnosed with prostate cancer, but likely to have a poorer survival rate once they are diagnosed. So again, I'm not sure how much of that is a is genetic predisposition to more aggressive cancers versus coming in late with symptoms uh, or yeah. a combination thereof. Um, yeah, I mean, it's only if you if you're being diagnosed in ED, then you're presenting with a um, something bleeding or something blocked yes. um and um, legs not working yeah yeah that's right uh, the um uh, and um yeah if we could it, so it's a proxy marker for that um delayed diagnosis isn't it really um it's not giving us a lot of detail around what it what the what the marker what what's actually happening but it's um uh, it's uh, a real warning to us and obviously if we can get the people earlier then we can and do more about it. Yeah. So that re-raises the issue of, of PSA testing. And again, it's a steady stream of complaints to HTC yes. around management of elevated PSA, patients not being notified or 
um, um, you know, uh, not being referred as they should be. Um, and on the other hand, people that have had a PSA done when they didn't consent to having a PSA done, it was just sort of ticked as a, as a um, routine, you know, well-manned check without the pros and cons being discussed with the patient. Oh, wow. So yeah, I certainly okay. reminded that you, you know, that you need patient consent for a, for a test that you are ordering. And theoretically, we should be, well, not, not theoretically, realistically, we should be discussing the pros and cons and reasons for these tests that we're ordering. Um, but to try and make that easier, I think the, um, there, are, there are several resources out there which I find um, can be quite helpful. So one is the um, Coupe website, which I've talked about before. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of videos on the Health Navigator website. I mean, brilliant website for everything. Uh, but they're, they're beautifully, they're, they're animated websites and they talk about um, prostate cancer and, and PSA screening particularly. And the PSA screening one really just gives you a, a really nice risk, um, uh, visual risk view of, you know, wh why would I get a PSA? What are the disadvantages? How many, you know, how many lives does it save in the end, et cetera? So if you, if you want to educate your patients, or in fact, if you don't want to have a 20 minute um, discussion with a patient, um, you can say, you know, we'll, we'll think about it, we'll have a look at these videos or we'll go to Coupe and then discuss it at your next visit. Um, but it is important, I think, to make sure that, that it's adequately informed consent when you're ordering the, um, the result. And when you get the result, I find this algorithm from the um, Ministry of Health um, Prostate uh, Cancer Management um, Handbook just so easy to yeah. go through. Uh, and it, just get, it really just clearly tells you what you should be doing. It aligns with the health pathways, uh, and it means there's much less chance of, of um, missing the you know, the, the 4.5 and the level in the 62-year-old, you think's okay and um, actually might not be. Uh, and, and the importance of actually determining uh, family history as well when it comes to um, giving advice on whether or not to get a PSA and um, uh, subsequent monitoring. That's excellent. I mean, I think the um, those resources that people can look at at home, because often it's the the, part, the partner's been involved in making that decision about coming in for a screening decision test, test as well. Yes. And yep. being able to go over that together is um, to, to, to make it a joint decision is really helpful. Perfect. And the, and the, the Coupe website would be brilliant for, for both parties to, um, to go through at their leisure. Um, next is just an update for Waikato DHB people on the Early Pregnancy Treatment Clinic, which used to be called EPAC. Um, so this came out in the latest um, uh, DHB GP liaison newsletter. Uh, so the clinic's aimed at pregnancies less than 16 weeks gestation, uh, establishing a management plan planning, uh, following a diagnosis of miscarriage, uh, or where there might be retained products of conception, uh, or sorry, confirmed retained products of conception, that's the critical thing, uh, confirmation of a model of pregnancy management uh, or coordinating management of a woman who's received methotrexate as treatment for a neck topic. So the important thing there is they will, appropriate referral requires confirmed miscarriage by ultrasound or confirmed retained products of conception following a miscarriage. It won't accept referrals for ultrasound scans for uncertain dates, viability, or seeking confirmation of miscarriage. It's not an acute service uh, and the patient can be expected to be called within five working days. So it's definitely not an acute service. Um, and I, I brought this up because it leads on to another 
area again that I've had a few complaints about lately, which is management of of miscarriage um, and and also ectopic pregnancy. So just a reminder from the health pathways that, that always consider an ectopic pregnancy if there's a positive pregnancy test and abdominal pain or bleeding. Uh, and the basic assessment is palpate the abdo uh, and check hemodynamic stability. But I have had complaints where um, uh, anti-D uh, might have been given and wasn't. Uh, and that raises some areas of responsibility if the patient already has a, um, an LMC whose responsibility does it become. But often in very early pregnancy, they haven't got an LMC and they're coming to see you with the, with the threatened miscarriage. Uh, but in fact, when you look at the New Zealand Transfusion Medicine Handbook, um, it notes that before 12 weeks gestation, in cases of either spontaneous complete miscarriage without instrumentation or mild painless vaginal bleeding, the risk of fetal maternal hemorrhage is negligible uh, so that anti-D wouldn't necessarily be required. Um, but I, th I think if there's, if there's any doubt, you're probably better off to ring the gynae reg and, and just check. Uh, and the other complaint I had recently was around a woman in early pregnancy who had had some light bleeding, had sequential HCG levels done and was reassured that the pregnancy was fine because both levels were within the very wide range that you get with HCG in early pregnancy. Um, and when she had a scan, anatomy scan done at 12 weeks, she had had a, mis, a missed miscarriage uh, of it at about six weeks. So had been falsely reassured that everything was was fine. And when you look back at the, the sequential HCGs, there was no way that the increase could have been um, um, accountable by a viable pregnancy. Right. So the mistake was looking at these two levels in isolation, both of which were within the range. But when you look at them sequentially, they did not, they did not, the doubling time was not. Um, yeah. Uh, co compatible with a, an ongoing pregnancy. What's interesting there is that 67% or greater over 48 hours. I mean, I, I'd, I'd assumed it, I'd, I'd always had in my head that it was a doubling over yeah. 48 hours. And yeah. Um, yeah. They've been quite conservative here, I think. Yeah. Um, and and there, is, there is a significant range, but um, I think what it's useful to know is you can get doubling time calculators um, okay. or easy access to doubling time calculators, which just make it very easy. So there's one here that, that I've um, given a link to Omni calculator. Basically, you just stick in the, the first and second levels, the days or hours, sometimes between measurements, and that will work out your doubling time, one day increase and two day increase. And you can determine from that whether that appears to be compatible with a, um, a viable ongoing pregnancy. There's an app for everything. There is these days. It's yes. very helpful. Um, so, uh, yeah, again, just, I think, protecting yourself from the risk of someone, particularly a, 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 an upset, distressed um, uh, woman who was in this case when she'd been reassured everything was fine and, and in hindsight she'd carried a, a non-viable pregnancy for an additional six weeks. Yeah. So just going back to the anti-D immunoglobulin, um, where you've had a mild, you know, a, a, a bleed in in pregnancy, there's no pain, um, but um, the mum is rhesus negative, um, then um, your the best advice would be to talk to the gynae reg, ask whether um, anti-D is necessary. Um, if it's, you know, somebody is six or eight weeks pregnant. Yeah, I think if, yeah. if, if the... Um... 
I mean, if it's very light bleeding, the New Zealand Transfusion Medicine Handbook would say there's no real indication. Yeah. Or if there's a complete miscarriage uh, and the bleeding settling, that if prior to 12 weeks gestation, there's probably no indication. Right. But again, I think unless you're uh, you know, used to, to this area and, and um, dealing with this on a reasonably regular basis, in case the advice changes, I'd probably take the time to, um, yeah. to check with the with the um, gynae ridge. The other issue is sometimes I see patients that have come in in early pregnancy with bleeding and haven't had their antenatal bloods done, but yeah. the antenatal bloods aren't ordered. So you don't know what the patient's RH status is, which yeah. could be an issue. Yeah. Awesome, um, thank you. Educational relaxation. So this is just a really brief link um, to the good GP. I don't know if you've seen any of their yes. podcasts. So. Yeah, just just a huge variety of of um, quite interesting educational podcasts related to primary care on on just numerous topics and brief, you know, 15, 20 minute relaxation, sit down and stick your headphones in and learn a bit at the same time. If you find learning relaxing. That's right. Yes. That's right. I mean, meditation may be better for you. But, um, <laughs> um, and finally, just tailing off with what we started with really this more on conscientious objection this is in relation to the new abortion legislation which was enacted in march of this year uh, and there were some changes to the responsibilities of a health practitioner um, who was requested by a patient to provide or assist with providing uh, services contraception services sterilization abortion uh, or any information on whether whether to um, continue or terminate a pregnancy so how, how do I how do I miss things like this, Dave? When know, if they change the legislation in March, it's September. Yeah, October. It, it's it's just we get sent this stuff and yeah, in a variety of forms, it just gets buried amongst the ten thousand other emails that come through. Um, but it's you know it can be quite important stuff. Um, so I don't know what the you know unless unless we do a some sort of medical legislation. Um, um, update every six months or something like that. Yeah. It, it well, this is this is why clinical snippets is so useful. But anyway, I interrupted you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, so the changes here are um, the, the devil's in the detail. But basically, if you have a conscientious objection to any of these services, um, you must tell the patient at the earliest opportunity, which I guess would generally be at the time of the consultation, yeah. of your conscientious, conscientious objection and how to access the contact details of another person who is the closest provider of the service requested. Uh, and the closest providers determined to take into account physical distance between the providers, date and time the patients made the request, and the operating hours of the provider of the service requested. Um, so I guess that might mean that perhaps if you're in a, in a, um, a small town that's half an hour away from the nearest family planning clinic, and you know there is another GP in town who doesn't have a conscious objection to providing the service and would see the patient, that you're obliged to tell the patient of that situation rather than just saying, oh, I'll ring up family planning clinic. That, that's my interpretation. Yeah, I wonder what prompted that, the need for that change. Um, I don't know. I don't know at all. I, I mean, I suspect yeah. it, it may be around, you know, um, telling, telling a patient, oh, just ring, con ring family planning, something like yeah. that, providing any more information or context or whatever oh well no that makes it very clear anyway as to what the responsibilities are yeah. uh, so that's started and ended on conscientious objection but no covid um so 
it's uh, it's for October. Well done. We should give you a no COVID round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Okay, it's great. Okay. Thanks for listening. Please like and share this podcast if you found it useful. The show notes on the podcast website contain links to all the resources that we discussed. A video version of this podcast is available on the Pinnacle Practice website at pinnacle.co.nz. Ka kite anō.